Welcome to the Everyday Sniper. You got Frank from Sniper's Hide here, and I'm bringing you another interview. This time we're going in the LE side, but we're going to a field craft type of LA operator out there, or LE operator. Um, I have John Norris, who was part of the California, their special operations game wardens, and he's part of the Gun Digest family, wrote The Hidden War, uh, How Special Operations Game Wardens Are Reclaiming America's Wildlands from the Drug Cartels. He also has a, another book out there, which was uh, War in the Woods. So John is like the perfect to combine field craft shooting and, and doing things that aren't urban, barricade. They're actually in the woods and they're going out patrolling, doing different things. So uh, welcome to the Everyday Sniper Podcast, John. Uh, great to have you on. Thanks so much for having me on, Frank. Glad to be here. Yeah, we're, we're all part of the Gun Digest family now, so they're, they're putting us together there. We had Jim say, hey, I got a good guy for the podcast, and <laughs> kind of talking with you, we, we, there's actually a lot of, like, crossover, and, and you know, we, we know some similar things. I was saying that California is so hard because it's such a big state, and it tends to be fragmented between what the north, the middle, and the south is doing so I, I was kind of, before we got on the air, I'm, I'm talking to John going, were you these guys? Were you this one? And to making sure I'm all good. But uh, give give everybody out there listening a little bit of your background. Go go how you came up through and then got into sort of the, the special operations game wardens. Yeah, definitely, Frank. And real quick, uh, definitely a shout out to our publisher, Jim Schlender. He's a good judge of character. And I'm really glad he brought us together uh, when he reached out last week and, uh, um, Look, and your book's awesome. He's done a lot of good stuff with mine. But basically, my background goes, I, I just retired from 28 years of being a wildlife enforcement officer, a game warden in California. I was based out of the Silicon Valley, and half my career was patrol-oriented, uh, doing the traditional stuff, the hunting, fishing, environmental crime, hunter education, the traditional things that the public generally identifies game wardens as doing. And then I was a squad lieutenant where I was supervising two and a half counties in the Silicon Valley and game wardens within that team and the Silicon Valley, we were doing just about everything. But one of the things we started to see in 2004, I was exposed to my first, uh, basically the drug cartels out of Mexico coming up into America, California and 25 plus other states and putting up these black market, you know, trespass uh, cannabis grow operations that are, um, that are always illegal because they're on public and private lands that they're not supposed to be on. But with the, the banned EPA, very toxic, destructive poisons they import illegally and use on these plants, they get into the black market, uh, unknowing consumers ingest this stuff and it, it's toxic. And what it does to wildlife is just ridiculous. Um, waterways, wildlife, wildlands destroyed for miles. Um, and a very you know aggressive, violent group of criminals um, that are many are fairly well trained. They're fairly well armed. And in 2005, we had our first of six officer involved shootings getting in gunfights with these cartel growers. And in 05, one of my partner wardens was shot through both legs by an AK 47 and barely survived that incident. And when that happened, we knew that for game wardens to stand that fight on an environmental protection front and also a public safety front in these, uh, remote wooded steep, uh, you know, kind of arduous terrain, environments where these grows occur we couldn't do this as patrol guys we needed a dedicated team with advanced training better weapons better tactics um, better administrative support air support trauma medicine anything any other SWAT unit or military special operations team would do difference being we were literally doing it within california borders in the silicon valley and every other county so 
as the new book goes into in 2013, I was blessed by our chief uh, of the agency at that time, Mike Carrion, um, along with another co-developer, my captain, Nate Arnold, to put a pilot program together, handpick the right people that we knew were doing this type of work within our, within our agency, and basically build a dedicated special ops team just to fight that problem. And that pilot program was very successful six weeks out of a three-month trial in 2013. And in 2014, we were told, make a full-time, get the testing criteria developed, and uh, we want you guys out of patrol and doing this full-time, which that was music to our ears. You know, we wanted to, f- to, f- to fight the hard fight with this more aggressive poacher we all felt, and uh, we had all seen a lot of gunplay and a lot of drama and a lot of injuries and almost a near-death experience of one of my partners, and we wanted to fight this head-on safely. So... We were full-time as a marijuana enforcement team um, with 12 guys and two good canines uh, at the time. And within four months, I was given the green light to develop our first interagency sniper unit, which was also another real blessing. And it was off to the races from there all the way up until I retired um, at the end of 2018. And now that team is still running strong. And even in lieu of this COVID pandemic, Frank, the cartels aren't stopping, just the opposite. They're taking this as a target of opportunity to enhance their grow operations because there's so little patrol or law enforcement presence out there right now due to the COVID issue. So it is going hot and heavy. I spoke with several of my teammates just this week back in California, and uh, they are knee-deep in grows already, and it's, uh, it's an alarming situation. Crazy. So you guys are actually operating more like an SF group because you're kind of going out there and you're doing the intelligence on your own. You got the, you, I mean, you might have a, a informers and stuff, but you have an intelligence side. Then you're going to go out and, 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 and you're going to go and set up and do reconnaissance and different things and figure out, you know, how they built this and then decide, you know, your takedown side. So you're actually operating pretty similar to an SF group. Yeah, it's really similar, uh, very similar. And, you know, having a, um, a 20-year veteran of the SEAL teams, and he was nine years active as a sniper, and other branch military veterans on the team that are now game wardens. And fortunately for me and another, a couple other partners that don't have a military history, but we were embedded in special operations and uh, sniper training, being sniper instructors, uh, SWAT operators. A lot of us had that with Allied Agency uh, Bay Area really, really um, skilled and talented teams that we were building for 15 years before this team became an issue. We just kind of, we saw it in our future. So we were kind of taking, you know, kind of an an advanced leap, if you will, to get the skill sets we were going to need, knowing that there was going to be this problem in the future for fish and wildlife officers to have to deal with. And um, definitely more of a backcountry rural team because these cartel grow sites, they might be 400 yards in, in really dense brush, from a, a $4 million mansion in the Silicon Valley, or they might be eight to 10 miles into a wilderness area at 10, 11,000 feet in the Eastern Sierras below Mount Whitney in California. You know, California is such a diverse state that our team had to be trained and equipped and, and, uh, and, and skilled from a field craft standpoint enough to work at sea level, to work in the, you know, the, the redwood forest, to work uh, in the, in the hot, you know, arid deserts, and also to go into the real high elevation uh, areas, which we spent a lot of time in, you know, when you, and as you know, more than anybody, brother, when you're shooting 308s at 11,000 feet versus 500 feet above sea level where we're based, ballistics change considerably, you know, and that's something our sniper unit uh, was, was, was dialing in on. And um, from the sniper side of things, before we even had our own unit and I was co-teaching with the Santa Clara County Sheriff's office and we developed one of the first 
law enforcement domestic advanced schools where, you know, up until that point, I had never shot past two, 300 yards, maybe in a sniper school. And we said, well, we got to get these advanced students aired out to at least 600. And, you know, and this was in the day before the 6.5 Creedmoor and applied ballistics and the 300 PRC where we're shooting it, you know, triple those ranges and beyond. But, you know, for law enforcement, domestic snipers to come to a rural-based school and shoot at 600 yards and do a day or two of hardcore stalking and field craft and camouflage to get to a target, do LPOP work, make the observations they need in a simulated grow house or meth house or whatever, that was a big step. And that was a big step for a lot of guys coming to the school and, and we really enjoyed it. And it fit right in with what we do as game wardens when we go to attack and eliminate these grow sites. Do, do you guys... Uh... Are you going, I mean, other than like LE shooting schools or something like that, are you going to any kind of field course? Are you going and using like Pendleton and going to the Marine Corps there and saying, hey, show us what's going on? Or are you just using the resources of guys who are, were prior service and then you're creating your own training group uh, around that? Or, or did you find a, the ability to send people to, uh, you know, either civilian or, or any type of military training out there? Yeah, we were lucky to get a little bit of both. Um, we were, you know, in the early days when game wardens were showing up at tactical schools, we really had to kind of be vetted by uh, a law enforcement sniper or a military SWAT operator, you know, that, that was now in a domestic agency and said, yeah, these guys, these guys are solid. They can shoot. They're in shape. They're motivated. They're team players. They're not what you might think a game warden is limited to because there was always that kind of that stereotype going on back there, kind of a misperception. And it was really, you know, like anything in our community, brother, it's really building those relationships over so many years within the military, within law enforcement circles all over the country and sometimes the world that we get those opportunities. And I'm very grateful to all the branches and all the, uh, especially the Silicon Valley um, tier one teams that really brought us in and gave us a chance and then offered up training. So um, the Marine Mountain Warfare Center, you know, there off of uh, Sonora Pass in California. Yeah, in Bridgeport. We spent a, in Bridgeport, amazing, amazing location. And, you know, we were getting help from that group with, with that branch, um, from everything from ropes training to long range work uh, and also getting to use their site for our ropes courses. And in that general area, without going into exact locations where I would take my snipers and the team still trains up there at least twice a year to get up to 11,000 feet and, and air those guns out and confirm ballistics in that thin air um, to be prepared for that mission if we have to deploy it at that elevation. So that's just one example of, of where we were integrating with the Marine Corps. Um, I'm very close to the SEAL team community and have a lot of friends in that community and having a retired SEAL on the team and, and now a chief of the cannabis program in California. He brought so much to the program um, and had a lot of relationships with, you know, sniper teams in, in all four branches and the special ops divisions of those branches. And we got a lot of access everywhere from Kalinga, like I said, to up in Bridgeport and really all over the state. So when we had a full-time team and weren't limited to patrol and I could, I could assign and, and travel with the team anywhere for training, we're, we were all over the board. Because as you know, when we're not operating, we're training and preparing or scouting grow sites or doing field craft and recon. Um, and training was, you know, 30% of what we do, if not more so, um, throughout the year. And we, we kind of had the, the gloves were off. We were able to go where we needed to go, work with whoever we thought would, you know, really uh, benefit the program and build those relationships. And it was a real blast to do since we had that opportunity. 
Nice, nice. Now, I, I'd mentioned on the podcast before, and guys listening to previous episodes would know, um, like I do classes all over, and, and, and I mentioned uh, to you uh, earlier before we got on, on the air, that uh, I do up in Alaska, and the parks guy's up there. Yeah. And, and the, you know, one of one of my first introductions to them is they, they their unit came through uh, to do a qual because uh, they were using the uh, sort of the range we use, and they, we were going to qual, and, and we did a class with them. And their qual... I was really impressed that it went to 600 yards. It was it was yeah. a, a minute and a half qualification, and and you know a minute and a half qualification with rifles that are lucky to be two minute rifles, you know. So it That's was huge. it's sporty. Yeah. It's a sporty. I mean the, the the game warden guys. You know people think of the the guy out there. You know writing a ticket for a fisherman or something that things like that that we see more localized to to where people live, but. You guys do have the fringe edges of the United States. And, and like I'd said uh, earlier, and, and guys had heard me talk about this, you know, the, the LE community uses the game wardens to supplement, especially when they go into the woods, because you guys are the field craft guys. You guys are that are living out there. You understand the area. Like you said, you're, you're training it. You're doing the rope training. And, and for like the Alaska group, you know, it's pretty easy if you have somebody yeah. in a city that does something wrong to go into the woods and disappear. Um, you know, there's a lot of off the grid living. There's a lot of people and, and you're not going to take, you know, an Anchorage, uh, a guy from Anchorage and say, hey, go into the into the middle of nowhere, uh, you know, up in the center of, of the state and go hunt this guy down. I mean, it's urban versus versus uh, the woods. And so they, they go, OK, who's the parks guy in that area that knows it? And they bring those guys in, so there is a huge training yeah. side of it. There, there's, there's a that field craft which I, I think is, is you know, is fantastic. And this is that part of LA that are sort of talked about, but are the outliers that I mean, when everybody thinks about LA sh or LE shooters, I keep saying LA, but it's LA. Um, LA, <laughs> yeah, LE shooters. You know, a lot of it gets mentioned through the guys doing warrants and different things in cities. So the numbers get skewed with the, you know, the 50 yards, the 72 yards, but you guys are the ones who throws those numbers out with the, the two, three, four 500 yard shots because you're out in, in the, um, you know, out there in, in the field where, where it can open up, it can shrink down. You know, I don't know how well they camouflage all of them, but you know, in, maybe they put them against the side of hills so you'd be a couple yeah. 200 yards above them and have an overwatch you know yeah it, um, to that point that's your first point was was spot on because people need to remember that your average game warden whether he's in special operations on like one of our teams or he's just doing patrol or she's doing patrol a majority of us come from hunting and fishing backgrounds since we were kids and so you know, to, to be an ethical hunter, you know, you can you can shoot short distance if you're, say, a whitetail hunter back east. But if you're from the West and being from California and then now in Montana, you know, I was raised 300 yards was a pretty routine shot, you know, for a hunting rifle with a two, two MOA accuracy standard where we might have to make that shot. And we couldn't go beyond that because we just didn't have the accuracy capability. But when, when you can do that in general as a kid, and then you go and, you know, develop into a game warden and you start having fun with it. There's a lot of natural long range proficient shooters just in the game warden forces because of where we work, like you just said. Um, and 
I've worked with so many city operators that were now thrown into a rural situation um, and had not had a lot of the field craft training, the off, you know, the, the off-road uh, tr- trail work through brush, um, situations like that. Um, when my partner was shot in 2005 and we had to lock down that mountainside in the Silicon Valley in the Sierra Zul mountain range, uh, they brought in tons of SWAT teams from all over the Bay Area. And a lot of those guys and gals, you know, hadn't been off pavement and it was a kind of a little bit of a fish out of water situation. And they, they stepped up and did everything they could do. But I talked to a lot of guys and gals that were involved in that incident. Cause it's, it's carved in our, you know, kind of carved in our brains of how crazy that day got, but they all realized, Hey, we were ill equipped for this. We just showed up. We were kind of thrown into the, thrown in the meat grinder. We wanted to support you guys in case there were more bad guys on the Hill, hold the perimeter, but uh, we weren't prepared to hike. You know, we weren't prepared to see target indicators. We weren't prepared to, you know, use the woods tactically for cover and concealment issues. There was all of that going on. Um, and and that's where knowing what game wardens can do and why I think it was kind of a natural progression for us to build this team, especially the guys that are on it, because they really are those game wardens that have exceptional careers. They're kind of the one percenters. They did everything on patrol exceptionally. Um their skill set's impeccable, but more than that, ego and attitude checked at the door. Team players, you know, um, a, a brotherhood that, as, as you all know, with with your teams, you know, that is that is that is priceless, you know, and, and a lot of times unattainable. And we got really lucky with that. And that's the model we're trying to perpetuate for other agencies in wildlife law enforcement that are dealing with these issues that patrol guys just can't. Nice, nice. And and talking equipment, because this this came up, I I wasn't sure if it was your group or not, but I had talked to Frank at POF, and I knew he was doing some things with a a yeah. a, a hidden game warden unit out of California. I knew he had contracts, so <laughs> yeah. I I asked you, I'm like, hey, did you have anything to do with the POF contracts that were? Because I run a lot of POFs. I know Frank DeSoma really well, and come to find out, you were the guy that set up. To move from and talk about your early years equipment and then moving towards the AR-10 platform and going to POFs and things like that. Because, you know, as you recognize your mission changes a little bit there and it's like, hey, we need to step up now. Yeah, brother, what a small world. Uh, I didn't know you had such that relationship with uh, with Frank over there at POF until, until we talked before the show. And uh, what a great guy. Um, was really honored to meet him through the testing process when we were selecting a new patrol carbine for the whole agency. And the the catalyst for that selection was really stemmed from the work we were doing um, with the marijuana teams. Even though we weren't a formalized unit, enough of us were integrating in with sheriff's departments and DEA and BLM and everybody else to realize the M14 platform we were carrying, as awesome as that weapon is and as bulletproof, reliable, and robust, it was a little unwieldy and and uh, really held us up in certain situations going through some of these very brushy, dense conditions. And um, as a result, uh, we had run the M14 for about five or six years and the M1A combination. We had a mix of, of true mil spec, fully auto with the selectors removed M14s through the, the DRMO program from the military. Um, it was really hard to give mine up, actually. <laughs> yeah, I bet. <laughs> oh, man, it was it was a. Uh, it was a, a no frills, never fail beast. But um, we tested 20 weapon systems. We tested 5.56. We were definitely going to go with an AR style platform. We decided we wanted a piston driver just because of the conditions we worked in and keeping maintenance down and reliability at its max. Um, and we definitely decided to stay with the 7.62 versus the 5.56 for barrier penetration, um, not necessarily just for special ops, but for large animals who might have to take down for public safety or depredation. 
Uh, California, we sometimes have to dispatch black bears, occasionally a public safety mountain lion, wild hogs, some of these tough animals that are a lot tougher than us two-legged critters. So um, we stayed with the big caliber. And in the end, we ended up with three weapon systems that got the contract bid to be tested. And they were, at the time, the SIG 716 that was brand new, just out of development. It was Frank's P308 uh, piston driver, and it was also the SCAR Heavy from FN. And, it, you know, it all comes down to a price point with Department of General Services on a statewide contract. And it was, it was quite an arduous uh, process through politics to even get a contract to get a weapon system for every patrol officer, 400 guns for game wardens in California at that level. Um, we, the, the SIG came in at the, at the lowest price. And while the SIG is an amazing platform at the time, it just wasn't quite ready to go from, I think, I think a metal hardening standpoint and failed a couple of endurance tests that were through the contract. We're not, we, we cannot continue with them. And Frank's gun was second up and that thing ran like a sewing machine. It was a 6,000 round military spec torture test that, um, that all the branches do for the M4, but with the uh, drastically increased pressures of a 7.62 in one platform. And through that 6,000 rounds, um, it more than performed to the standard, and we selected Frank's gun. And that was for the whole agency, and I was part of the firearms training committee statewide at the time to integrate that training transition course for all of our officers, 20 officers at a time, turn in the M1A, turn in the M14, get your P308, and I mean, it was kind of like kids at Christmas because you go from an iron sided battle gun that we didn't really have any, any real, uh, you know, modern tactical accessories on except for us marijuana guys where we cut the barrels down on the M14s to 18 inches. We put on, you know, a Picatinny rail basically on, on the fore end and put on uh, a, a micro aim point, kind of a scout style of Veltor pistol grip stock. And that's, that's as compact as we could make the M14. Now we get this AR platform that's Cerakoted and OD green. It's got tan furniture. We've got a laser engraved Game Wardens badge, you know, just below the dust cover on the receiver. Uh, we got an aim point sight. We got diamond head backup sights. We have a, a Viking Tactics two-point sling. We have um, six Magpul magazines. And every officer gets that. I mean, it was unheard of for patrol anywhere for any agency outside of a special operations team to get a weapon system that's so beautiful and, and that's so comprehensive. So we were very excited to see that happen. And it was definitely exactly the weapon we were going to need when we started this full-time team. We didn't have to reinvent the wheel. And we started using the P308 just from patrol. We went right into the MET unit. And uh, and that was our primary platform until we went to his, his very lightweight new revolution the uh, revolution did you guys create yeah. a qual around that system at all do you did you have a qualification for it or did you just go off of your your sort of normal quals you know frank we we had to redo a qual and i was i was the guy that put that together with some help from some guys on the firearms committee of our qualification up to that point mm. um when we had the when we had the m14 or the first the first couple of years we had the m14 we had this, uh, it was, a, I can't even remember, a 10 or 20 round qualification that was primarily long range. It was primarily slow moving. Uh, it wasn't utilizing tactical cover. It was an old school game wardens course where you were doing accuracy with any rifle you would carry. And before we had a formalized rifle program, which was the M14 before Frank's P308, it was a hodgepodge. If you had a Remington Model 700 30-06 bolt action and you had an armor inspected and you qualified with it, 
that was your patrol rifle. If you had our Vietnam veterans were running, you know, M uh, AR-15, A1 styles, some of them like that because they, they knew that in the jungle. Some guys had 330 lever actions, Ruger, you know, mini 14s, ranch rifles. I mean, it was just a hodgepodge. And while everybody needed a rifle, there were certainly some liability issues and some inconsistencies there that needed to be remedied. And when the M14 came on board, uh, I was part of a group that helped change that. And we went from uh, a standing long range course with a ton of time to a multiple stage tactical move and shoot, utilizing cover, multiple positions, um, uh, you know, longer, uh, longer round count course, a 40 round course that really played to a semi-automatic with multiple magazines, worked great for the M14 and then really shined when we got an AR platform due to the uh, smooth agronomics. Nice. We, we talk about, you know, kind of how things, it's so hard to change it. And, and I, you know, we did a bunch of the uh, Department of Energy stuff and th they went to the Mark 11s, the sem you know, the 308 semi-autos, yeah. but their qual ridge before that was originally based on an M1 carbine because if the Department of Energy goes <laughs> right? back to World War II, to the, yeah. you know uh, Manhattan Project, and so they had M M M1 carbines and that was like their qual. Then they had 14s and stuff, and it was the same qual as the carbine. So when they they get these 308s and we're doing you know these this week long class with them. Yeah. And then their qual for this this Mark 11 is inside 100 yards on a full, you know, uh, the K5 or whatever, the, the you know, the FBI body target. You guys just have a green one or the DOE had a green one instead of a black one. Um, right. And, and so inside 100 yards, they're doing this qual. And then finally, we worked with these guys to say, hey, man, if you're going to be sniper teams and you're going to do this and you're going to use this platform, your qual should go to like 800 and and they right. ended up creating a qual to 800. I mean the, the 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 tricky part of that is if you don't qual, you don't carry the system. Right. And and so it, it it's it's a it's a tough balance. So like I said, the parks guys in Alaska had a qual to 600 yards. Did you extend your qual distance wise and you, do you now have a, a, a is it specialized for that one group within the the game warden system or does does everybody have a uh, an updated qual. Yeah, we, we have a standard qualification for all the officers in the agency with, with, with the POF platform. And basically from a patrol standpoint, the qualification is a hundred yards and in, but again, it's that same tactical qual that I, that I helped develop for all of our platforms to transition over to the M14. And idea being that with the red dot, the standard patrol officer uh, with whatever situation they get into um, they're probably not going to shoot past that, but they are trained outside of qualification. We shoot them all, even our cadets out of the Academy when they get the, the POF out of the box and they do that, that week long uh, course of awareness. And then, and then the transition course, they're shooting 300 yards and beyond on oh. man size steel and or rocks. It's not in the qualification, but they're learning the dope. They're learning how to use a red dot for that. They're, they're not getting into what, of course, our snipers would be with either, uh, mill holdovers or anything with with uh, MOA clicks or any of that, but um, but they're shooting a good distance, you know, for a patrol warden coming out of the box with, you know, a red dot that's point of aim, point of impact. They're they're good, just like a, a standard military uh, battle site zero on the M16, good to about 225 yards wherever they put that dot. They're going to hit that torso. Um, but we, we teach them a little bit of holdover stuff if they have to reach way out uh, to that 300 yard mark and. And uh, yeah, I remember when we were doing the transitions down at the Kalinga range in California, 
um, the first few M14 schools, whenever we use that range, great course because they had strategic steel set up at those really extreme long range distances. So we would have our, we would have our students uh, from a patrol standpoint, shooting at five, 600 on steel, um, just to see the applications of that arc and that delay and how they could hit or if they could hit not a qualification standard, but exposure to understanding if they ever gotten that 1% moment, they, they could, they could, you know, save their lives. Or right. Else. A fam fire. So they, they understand, Hey, if yeah. you, you've done it. So it's not new. Here, here you go. So you get that familiarization fire. And, and no, it makes perfect sense. And, and you know, the, those weapon system, people think like, I know the POF and, and I've done this with other groups th- that have come to me and said, hey, we hear you have a couple POFs there. Can we, you know, shoot them with our stuff and compare them? And, yeah. you know, th- that that's happened to me in the past. And, and to me, my and my POFs, I don't think are anything fancy. They're, they're older Rack Creek versions and probably around the yeah. same time frame that you got yours. But um, it's it's insanely accurate. My, 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 you know, even most people, oh, the piston drivers aren't accurate. Bullshit. My, my, yeah, my POA yeah. isn't any different than any others. And I know the couple tests that I've done with my rifles, with other LE departments locally, the, the POF's always won me standing there. Now have all those... Uh, groups gone and bought POFs after? No. I'll tell you, like, one unit went to uh, to Knight's Armament yeah. because the military was using Knight's Armament. So they, they came in, they they looked at everything, they shot my POFs, they brought their ammo and their stuff, and they're like, hey, this is probably the best rifle we've shot in the group. And then, you know, a couple weeks later, you go, hey, what'd you guys get? Oh, we went to Knight's Armament because the army said, <laughs> right, right, and right. and you know they spend twice as much money and they and they and they lose like half the accuracy because they're not getting the cherry picked CAG one or anything. You know, it's like right, right, it, right. it's like you went you, you they went and talked to a CAG guy, uh, you know, a Delta dude, and he's like, yeah, our, our Knight's Armaments are the greatest guns. Like, yeah, those are like cherry picked guns, man. And and so then they get the 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 six thousand dollar you know, off the shelf one and it's nowhere near as what they expected. And it, it was pretty right. funny because they, yep. they, they cried a little bit about it, but it, it's, it's not an easy process to go through and to, and to create these, these, these buys and to, and to say, Hey, you know, we want this weapon system. That's not a, that's not an easy thing to say, Hey, we have a need, you know, Hey boss, can I get it? And it's, it's like hoop after hoop after hoop that you have to jump through. You got to make sure everybody yeah. knows you're doing it and, and who competes with that contract. You know, like you said, there's a process um, that you have to go through because you can't just, you know, say, Hey, Frank's a great guy. We're going to buy his stuff. And eh, it don't work that way. No, it doesn't brother. It's, it's, it's interesting. When we did that POF transition from the M14, I, I think the biggest hurdles was just convincing our legislators that, we need a new weapon system and this is why. And when they saw that, I think it was a 1.2 or $1.3 million contract for the state of California to re-equip their game wardens with this really nice, completely comprehensive system, uh, POF system from Frank DeSoma, they balked at it. So I know I was in some meetings with our chief at the time, Nancy Foley, and some of our other headquarters staff going over to the Capitol and sitting with aides and senators and assemblymen trying to say, no, guys, this is exactly why we need it. You know, we had we had, had an officer involved shooting with my partner getting shot in 05. And it wasn't just limited to that. Our patrol officers had been involved in, you know, several aggressive officer involved shootings outside of special operations marijuana work. Um, when Christopher Dormer, you know, was holed up in, in Big Bear 
mm-hmm. lake area down in California. It was a, one of our officers, a Marine Corps veteran, actually, and highly skilled. And I'm glad he was in the car when they passed Christopher Dormer. But he was the first to engage Dormer in in Big Bear as Dormer was making that escape to that cabin where we, where he was eventually uh, where he eventually expired. Yeah. So for game words getting into that, and you know, to be out there with an older iron sighted gun with with no light, you know, no red dot or anything else, we had to convince people why that was necessary and why the money was justified and that, you know, um, California game wardens weren't going commando. And I remember when I was involved in an officer, when I was involved in that shooting and I had to engage with my M14, my first officer involved shooting when my partner was shot in that, that gunfight we just talked about, trying to acquire a moving target in brush, even at short range through a peep sight, uh, you know, at low light, early morning hours compared to my sheriff's partners that had an AR, they had an ACOG or some sort of EOTech, um, they had a weapon light. So even in non-building conditions, so few people realize that when you're in deep brush, you need to have a weapon light all the time on your handgun as well. Whether you're going into a tent, a cartel tent, you're going into a cave, an adobe that's been cut out, or just in dark, dark terrain cover, it's amazing how much things get blurred where you use an artificial light in daylight conditions. Um, we didn't have any of that on our M14s, and it, it, that was the justification to get through that hurdle. And I'm really glad we did because that was uh, – that started that testing process and it was very objective. I can say as much red tape as we go through in selecting a weapon system through department of general services, it's done correctly. So there's no, um, you know, improprieties. There's no favoritism to hey Frank's my buddy, or I know a guy at SIG or I know a guy at HK or whatever. And we're going to come use their weapon because we know they're good weapons. It was, it was a real serious testing protocol the way it all worked. Nice, nice. Now, uh, to get back to the field craft side, because we you talked about changing your 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 qual into more alternate positions, getting off your belly. Did you find when when you sort of create this unit, and, and I know you have guys who have military experience there, but guys who may not have military experience that then come into this field craft side of of the business, did you find any sort of like um? Uh, realization like we can't be on the ground, you know, like you have to be alternate position and, you know, cause most yeah. people think prone and doing different things. And then when you get out there in reality, you can't lay on the ground cause you're not going to see anything. And so, exactly. and so do you, did you find any kind of like, uh, uh, was it, was it an interesting, like, Oh shit, prone don't work um, moment early on? Yes, very much so. Very much so. Again, because unless we're on flat surfaces on a traditional range or we're in the desert, you know, we're, we're moving through forested woodlands, whether we're on a trail or not, where we have brush and grass at six inches high up to three feet, you know, where you have all this concealment you're using when you're sneaking into an area, whether it's a cartel marijuana camp, um, it's a potential poacher camp, a water diversion issue, whatever our, our patrol guys would do, or our Marine guys, you know, using those those 762 platforms off of swells with swirling winds off our big patrol boats and everything else going to Catalina Island or hitting any of the islands off the, off the, the far coast of, of California, all those things come into play. And something we teach right at the uh, cadet Academy level when everyone gets that new rifle is they learn to shoot standing. They learn to shoot kneeling, both hasty kneeling and supported kneeling. They learn, they learn good old proper Marine Corps style seated positions of how to get those, you know, that, that bone on bone and, and get off that bone on bone contact where it needs to be, you know, where to lock those elbows into the insides of the knees and 
um, all those things, as well as shooting prone. I mean, I'm, I'm like the next guy. I love to shoot prone. I'll shoot prone every minute I can. <laughs> but, but as you know, man, honestly, when I get into the field, we shoot prone so little. We've never been in a gunfight where we've been in a prone position for anything. Yeah. You know, on the met front, we've either been standing or we might have got a kneel behind a small, you know, eight inch diameter willow tree that we're, we're using as concealment at best until we can move to cover. So, yeah, we drive that point home um, in our sniper qual, for instance, with the P308 that's just been modified from a red dot to we're using some older stuff still, but uh, we started with Mark four, four and a half to 14 by 50s, illuminated TMR reticles. Um, not quite, you know, when I left, we weren't into uh, running mills yet and running applied ballistics like the Kestrel device I'm using now on my 300 PRC. You know, like we talked before the show, that's really changed the game. And my sniper team back at home is looking at all this stuff, especially the 6.5 Creedmoor. But when we were transitioning over just to get a sniper platform that was mobile, small, we could integrate with entry on a grow. We could do close quarter stuff with it. We didn't, we didn't reinvent the wheel. We took that same 14 and a half inch barreled platform. That was our patrol rifle. We put a good optic on it. We camoed them out. Frank already has a good trigger in his gun. You mentioned the accuracy brother of POF in general, those rock barrels that are on their standard patrol uh, carbine. And what we use on our sniper rifles are extremely accurate. Just like you said, yeah, you know, yeah. one M one MOA out of a short barreled uh, with good ammunition POF revolution or otherwise is commonplace. So, you know, we're, we're not shooting again with a, with a gas gun that's compact like that. We're not going to attain that half MOA accuracy that my axial precision shoots my bolt gun or my six, five, it's just not going to happen. But for what we were doing on the Met front and the game we're in front in general from a sniper application, that was kind of overkill for what we're doing in the field in those brushy conditions where, Cover and concealment and distances are going to be relatively short. And even with those short barrel platforms, getting body size hits at 600 yards is not a problem. No, that 14 and a half is money. Right? Yeah. 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 Um, a lot of my guys coming in would say, oh, you know, should we go with the 18 inch barrel version? Should we stretch these things out? And I, you know, I would always harp and say, look, accuracy isn't increased by barrel length, but stability and velocity is. So if you have a good core barrel and you're doing your part on the gun, you're going to hit with a little less energy, but you're going to be able to go and mobile and move a lot more. So I'm about a compromise. And, you know, even as compact as those platforms are, you know, you add another four inches of barrel and you start doing some long humps. Uh, it's, it's really hard to integrate with our entry guys as we would need to, um, unlike other sniper teams. So we've, uh, we've stayed with the short barrel and it's been good. Nice. Now, have you guys transitioned to any tripod work for that extra stability for being off the ground? We absolutely have, man. Um, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because I, you know, before the, the, the multiple uh, tripods and, and some of these sniper devices that give us a tripod and, and a nice uh, lockable rest for standing on like a, a rooftop or off a cliff came out. I started using shooting sticks when I was hunting big game in Africa. I had never been a guy that was into shooting sticks because I thought, hey, it's something else I'm going to carry around. I need that free hand to get into position. And then I went over there and did a planes game hunt with a good outfitter friend of mine and was using his sticks left and right. And I was realizing, man, you know, the light bulb kind of went off. I go, I cannot believe what I can do standing with a good set of sticks. And then what I can do when I can go into kneeling if I have an adjustable set of sticks. So when we built the team, I, I bought everybody shooting sticks um, for snipers. And there were five of us on snipers when the Met sniper team started. 
and even my SEAL team veterans said, you know, dude, I've, we never really used sticks in the teens. And, um, I don't know, I'm going to have to get used to them, but I'm going to try. And we all started using them. And then we started integrating them into our quals. We started, you know, compacting the, the, the collapsible ones where they get in the, they get in the backpack so nice and tight or on a side slip and they don't hang up. And I mean, even Frank, just to have the first level where they're, you know, maybe a foot and a half high and they're just a good tripod B and I can put that thing in grass and still back way up and get semi prone with tons of cover and concealment. Amazing the stability and accuracy we could get. And then when we're doing our standing shots, if you're winded and you have that thing set up and they're lightweight, you can, I mean, you can just air out your distance so much more. So we, we love them. They're standard equipment now. And, you know, whenever we integrate on say an urban situation, which we sometimes will, um, we'll look at different devices as well. Yeah. I mean, like for you guys, uh, other than your, your sort of training work, I think in your platforms, you can go without a dang bipod, get rid of it, just carry a smaller, not as super stable, like kind of like really right stuff. They're, they're expensive, but they have like a hunter tripod now, which yes. they're really rigid. Yeah. They're light. I mean, these things are, we're talking like a pound, you know, uh, the, the, the 20, the 24 I'm using, the really right stuff. 24 that I have is only 2.2 pounds and it's super stable. It's, that's, it's, that's cool. Yeah. It's like a comp one, but they have a hunter version that's like 1.4 or something like that. And, and, you know, it, it's, it would be a case where if you're setting up and, and a lot of that is cause you're going to do some observations first, you might be, um, supporting an assault, but you know, the bipods, it, you always see hunters and different guys who do the field craft and go in the woods really dislike the bipods, especially at that, that last hundred meter tricky part where they're trying to be stealthy and the bipod right. wants to get hung up. You yep. know, so they put them on backwards. They do all kinds of weirdness to it. You got, you know, most do are, most are doing a Harris in the springs and wangs yeah. and bangs. And, you know, so in my mind, it's like get rid of that completely for the field and just have that, a, a small, light, but stable tripod in your pack. And now you got your sitting, kneeling, standing, supported, covered, Regardless of where you are, you could build positions around it. So tripods are, to me, it's probably one of the most valuable tools for a field craft type situation, even beyond the bipod, more so than the bipod, like I, I kind of just said. Yeah, 100% agree with you, man. It's, um, that, that is the big transition. And even though on our, on our small POF platforms, we have the 6 to 9-inch Picatinny rail adaptable quick-detach Harris bipod, if we're going to set up on a, a solid prone overwatch rural or urban, cause we've, we've been in those situations, but those things come off in a flash with that, with that LaRue lock unlock lever that it's combined with. And a majority of the time when we're running ops, those are off the gun entirely. And if we need to go prone and get support really quick, we can use our pack. Yep. And, you know, we definitely, we definitely have a forward padded rest for that on each one of our Molly packs. And then to your point, exactly that shed of su- shooting sticks comes out and that sets up for our, for our final firing position if we're in, a, in you know, any type of rural situation. I remember our first deployment after we formed Delta Team, it was a private land cannabis grower that was trespassing on public land in Santa Cruz County. He had a butane honey oil lab for concentrated cannabis, which was illegal and uh, you know, a bunch of felonies involved. And we didn't know what we were up against. And on the threat matrix, there were a lot of uh, officer safety threats analyzed for that. So we had warrant teams hit two residents that were so deep in the redwoods on this creek and our sniper team went in the middle of the night to set up on that op 
And I remember if it hadn't been for our shooting sticks, there's no way we could have got stable looks at all the A, B, and C side and, and some of the D sides of the resonance from our concealed position about a hundred and we were probably about 120 yards out, but watching this stuff and um, the bipod window worked, we couldn't have sat there seated or, you know, support or unsupported, just wanted to play, but just simple shooting sticks with a good, comfortable backrest. We kind of owned all those corners of the home as our, as our entry teams hit the target. And it was one of those moments, you know, where you're sitting there, you built the team and you're on your first mission and, you know, you've got guys in crosshairs and you want your entry team to get in safe and you just, you breathe a sigh of relief and go, okay, this, this is going to work. And, you know, we're keeping it simple. These are not deluxe expensive bipod systems or shooting stick systems, but they're effective and they're compact. And that hump going into that detail was uh, we were going through some of the, the gnarliest country I've ever done in the middle of the night. You know? right. I was and just going to ask. So <laughs> I have a question for you. Yeah, I got a question. I'm listening to this and it's kind of making me laugh and, and, and I don't mean, but my, my question that kind of creeps in my brain, did you ever kind of go, you do your middle of the night, you go to your tentative uh, final firing position and you get there and you go, holy shit, this sucks. Who picked yeah. this spot? And then you're like, this is the worst place ever. And now you got to move and try to find something in the dark and kind of, you know, the sun's getting ready to come up and you're in like the worst place ever. Did, did you guys ever kind of come across and just look at each other and go, who picked this spot? Oh man, Frank, a lot. And you know what, as you know, the target sometimes has to dic dictate your final firing position, which they're not always tactically advantageous. You know, they're, we don't always have the sun at our back. We don't always have high ground elevation. We're not always in three levels of, of terrain canopy cover for, for breakup. Um, but yeah, it's, it's kind of like some of these we have to set up on the fly because you're just getting into position where you can actually navigate safely without getting your, you know, basically getting yourself burned and discovered. And you might be set up five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes before the entry team arrives when you would have been want, wanting to watch that target for a couple of hours. And I remember in this case, because we had to move so many different places on this mission and then backpedal because of noise issues, dogs in yards that would start barking in the middle of, you know, all those different yep. uncontrollable field uh, indicators and problems. Um, we, we, we were on target just in time to keep it safe and do everything we needed to do. But it was definitely one of those frustrating moments where we went, wow, this one was, uh, this was a learning experience. Nice. <laughs> so, I'm going to, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to blindside you right now and I'm going to hit you with like a personal thing of mine and, and I'm being serious, but I, I, I okay. want, I want an answer here. So sure. you're, you're up there in, in, in mid central Northern California, you're doing your thing. You're in the woods, you're patrolling everything. I got to hear a Bigfoot story. Oh man. Yeah. Bigfoot in Northern California. I mean, he, he's like a, like, like a state icon, Yes, you know? Um, I have so many people up there in, in some of that, you know, known cannabis country, Humboldt County and Willow Creek, all those areas that all these documentaries came out in the seventies and late sixties. Uh, there's just that lore. And I've talked to many people that have seen him in a certain place or thought they saw a scat or heard him howling at night. Um, they, they, they believe it. They believe it. Now, have I seen a Bigfoot personally? I can't say that I have. I'm hoping someday that I do um, to put this debate to rest. But uh, but a lot of people in California say they have. So I don't know. Maybe. And, maybe and my understanding something. is so here's here's the situation. You're a game warden, right? So I, I'm gonna right. I'm gonna go hypothetical here. So completely hypothetical. So I'm in the woods. I got my POF right, and I'm sitting there, and all of a sudden I see a Bigfoot. 
I can right. I, I can shoot him no problem. I got no liability as long as he is a Bigfoot and he's not just some homeless guy. Um, um, I'm going to caveat it, but right. There is no tags. I don't need anything to hunt a Bigfoot. Yeah. The fishing game code and the title 14 that we enforce Bigfoot isn't identified as a, a, a game or non-game animal. He's not identified at all. So it's kind of like a UFO landing, right? You know, and if the UFO lands, there's not, you know, any, any limiter tags or hunting seasons on aliens, but if they come out and they're a threat, I think we have to deal with it accordingly. So, um, yeah, there's there's no regulation on Bigfoot, and uh, uh, technically, you could look at it as open uh, open season if he's threatening you. I guess. You know what? I, I never <laughs> thought about popping an alien either. I I would be so like amazed that one landed that I wouldn't think like a Bigfoot. Everybody thinks if I see a Bigfoot, I'm going to shoot it. If I have a gun, Bigfoot's there. He's going to get shot. An alien. Nobody right. ever goes. Well, if I see an alien. I should shoot that too, but because we all right. figure we all figure they got bigger guns than we do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we, yeah definitely. I'd, I'd be fearful of that, but I mean, hey, I want to have something in my hand just in case. Right? Yeah, well, I still want my gun, right? But I, I don't know if <laughs> yeah. I would take the first shot at an alien because their guns are going to be bigger. But the thing, you know, now, like Bigfoot people, though, when you talk to somebody who believes they see a Bigfoot or something, these people are dead serious, and and it's it's hard to convince Big them gun. otherwise, isn't it? It, it, it very much is, and and I I never try to convince anybody otherwise if, if they're adamant about it. But I love to hear the stories, and you know, and I've had a lot of really reputable people say they've seen something that couldn't have been anything but a Bigfoot, you know, or some sort of unidentified primate. So there's there's an, and it's going on in Oregon, it's going on up here in Montana where I'm at. I mean, it, California was huge for it. You know, every state it, has some version of a Bigfoot. It, it may be, I believe almost every state in the union has their own. Now, some places have like their Mothmans that trump the Bigfoots, but, right. all, you know, <laughs> almost every, I, even Texas. I know because te like, you know, what, what brings me up is because I used to tell people I'm the world's most successful Bigfoot hunter because <laughs> okay. I've come as close to anybody of getting him and I have none of their failures. Right. You know, <laughs> there you go. So yeah. it's yeah. like me and you, you know, if you went out in the woods looking for Bigfoot and didn't see him, well, I've come just as close as you from my, you know, office here. And, but the, <laughs> the thing is, it, it, it's, you know, I'm down in Texas working and stuff, and, and it was a police department guys who were in a, a precision rifle class that actually said, oh, no, man, you can't joke about that. They had a, an officer quit his job to become like a full-time Bigfoot hunter because in wow. like Sam Houston State Park, he was riding a four-wheeler and swears he saw one. And it was such a profound impact on him. He quit his job. And so, the, yeah, wow. cr yeah, crazy. So I was making a joke about it. And, and these guys are like, hey, man, it, 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 while it sounds funny, it's really not people. It, it affects people on a level that's, that not everybody understands, but um, it's it's just yeah. You're in the middle of Bigfoot country. You're kind of snooping and pooping around, and you wonder if you come across any of these things. And 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 I know from just talking with random people, you have to hear stories and different stuff uh, that happens. Um, you know, from them saying, "Hey, man, something was around my house. I don't know what it is." And they probably call game wardens more than anybody when they hear, feel there's something foreign outside their door. Absolutely. And, you know, anything like, uh, you know, perhaps a black bear that's up on his hind legs, you know, um, 
you see, you know, one of these primates that's gotten out of captivity that might have been in somebody's yard with or without a legal permit. And, you know, you got a primate running around in the woods, which could happen. And, you know, all kidding aside, as crazy as it sounds, those misidentifications definitely fuel the fire of something being out there, you know. Um, and there are those dedicated Bigfoot hunters in all walks of life that with science backgrounds, like you said, law enforcement, military guys. Uh, my thing has always been up here and I have this talk with my uncles and my family up here in Montana all the time. It's like, I just want one of these, you know, one of these Bigfoots that have died of old age and someone finds them in a cave somewhere and we can put the debate to rest. Exactly. Put the story to rest. You know, we need yeah, something. I mean, <laughs> it's crazy because they, you know, like the DNA is weird because, um, they, they've tested DNA, like the Tibetans and the things. And there's a lot of monks that say they have pelts, uh, from Yetis and it's a weird mix, though, because like the one in Tibet has a polar bear element to it. So right. they're, they're like, you know, they find these pelts and it's like, well, OK, it's it's like half polar bear, half brown bear. So it, it's but it's it's on the wrong parallel of, uh, you know, the ecosystem there, however they do it. You know, they, right. they look at like from the North Pole, there's these these bands of where wildlife lives. And they go, okay, well, wait a minute. We just found this polar bear DNA in a band that's way too far south. Right. It's and, just not adding up. Right. Yeah. So it doesn't add up. But, I mean, yeah, we need something. We're either missing a huge chunk of this DNA or the DNA is so blended into something we already know about, you know, and so it's being masked or we haven't dug down deep enough. But it's, it is an interesting thing because there are so many dang stories it's everywhere in the world, and yet nobody has a a physical hand on something, and they can say this is wrong. You know, it's weird. It's funny. Yeah, yeah. It, it's got to give because, like you said, every every state in our constantly growing populated U.S. and even all these remote areas, like where I'm up at Montana. I mean, it is remote of the remote as you can get before you you know get into the Alberta border. Um, there's access is just so much more there for everybody you know timber harvest crews are out in the more remote areas everything's being gps and marked even the wilderness areas and i'm just uh, i'm surprised at this point that there has not been a dna sample or a body or a part or something found and if he's out there something's i mean seriously going to have to give soon because there's not going to be that much remote right we don't left. have any land it's left have, and we're, we're running out you know? right so and you figure at some point somebody like you had said is going to be building a condo unit and they got to dig something up there, I mean, yep. I know they exactly. do have some go. bones that they consider gigantus and things. There, there's every now and then there are a couple, like going back to the 1800s, bones of people who were the seven, eight feet tall, and and they and they claim like a gigantus element to it. But they, <laughs> yeah, but yeah. they really don't know. But they do have bones of things that are around the eight foot mark, and you know, rare, but they're there. Yeah, and it it that that makes sense and. You know, me personally, I'm, I'm hoping we find something. It would be really cool to know these out there, you know, that there's this unique primate type species that's been dodging mankind and all of our de development, all the destruction we've done on the planet. Yeah, yeah. And, he's, and, and he's just trying to circumnavigate like a sniper on a field craft trail and not leave sign and brush his tracks, you know, and st stay off those those real trackable areas on the ground and to successfully hide out from humanity and not get detected. 
I mean, that's the best field craft I've ever heard of. So I, it, it would be cool if, he, if he's out there. We, 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 when I was up in Alaska, I, I had uh, one of the guys made a cast for me, a big, because he's, he's really good at building. <laughs> so he did a plaster cast for me, and we had the, um, the parks and the BLM land guys there, and they were doing their class. And so I went up, the, and one of them was getting ready to leave. We had finished for the day, and he put his uniform back on his, his, his street kind of patrol. Um, his, his, I don't know what you would call him, but his tan uniform. Uh, more so than his his utilities, and so uh, he he put that back on, and he was he he looked official. So I I ran into the vehicle and I went and got the cast, and I said, "Hey, dude, I need to take a picture with you with my cast," and and, and saying that I'm I'm turning over my cast to the BLM guys, and, and he's like, "No freaking way!" He goes, "You're gonna put that on the internet." He goes, "Get away from me with that thing." <laughs> he's all going to be branded as that BLM agent. Yes, man. exactly. He didn't want to be that agent. Oh, that's he's like, that's he's perfect. He's like, no, I'm not that guy. So, all right, John. Hey, man, we hit the hour up. Uh, is there anything else? I know you got your book on Amazon, uh, The Hidden Wars. And and um, so is there anything you got to plug or uh, going on beyond the, the, the books at the Gun Digest store? Because we're, we're coming up. I've had you for the hour, man. And, and so, yeah, it, you know. <laughs> yeah. Quick hour, man. Definitely good stuff. But, but yeah, people, if you, if anyone wants to get a hold of me, cause like you, I, I teach and I speak all over the country when this COVID stuff lifts, especially, but, um, on Instagram, I'm just John Norris, J O H N N O R E S. I got a website that's www.johnnorris.com and you can get to my email through that. Um, yeah, we're selling the book on Amazon. We also did an audible that I got to read for and, and do the narration for with us, with a studio producer in Atlanta last August. And, this guy does amazing um, billboard artist music. So he did an original score to it. He put in the proper sound effects with water, gunfire, canines, helicopters. And it just adds that element of so many people that can't read right now because they don't have the time to get into a book, but they're driving or they're listening to podcasts like, like this good show. Um, that's something to look into. And then you're not you know, dealing with packages and, and things like that. So um, yeah, just appreciate being on the show, man. Love everything you're doing. Uh, looking forward to diving into your book too, Frank. And, uh, what a good talk! Yeah, a lot, it was a lot of, lot of lot of good stuff. Yeah, it was definitely a fun conversation. Um, you know, it we, it flowed really well. We had a blast with it. Uh, so what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna close this out, but stay on the line because I'll I'll close out with you off the line. But I'll do my exit music and everything. Um, so yep. we'll do that. But hey, everybody, thanks for listening to the Everyday Sniper podcast. Don't forget to share, to comment, go over to the Sniper's Hide forum and check that out. Uh, we posted some um stuff up. But uh, definitely great time, a lot of fun, and I appreciate you coming on, John. Thanks. Thanks so much, Frank. We'll talk soon. Yep.